The reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 22. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Well, good morning, Providence. Uh, My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here at Providence and If you would, if you have a Bible or your phone or something, would you flip it open to 1 Corinthians 15? 1 Corinthians 15, as Andrew's read, we'll get there in a minute. Um, But if you are new this morning, uh, I just wanted to kind of catch you guys up with what we're doing. So Jared kind of said this earlier, but this summer we're in what we're calling our core team phase. And so what that means is we believe everybody in this room, if you're on board and you're with us to plant this church, that you guys are church planters, that we as a a team are planting this church. And as church planters, we want to have the same kind of identity and DNA and be on the same mission. And so what we're doing this summer is we're basically just talking through why are we planting this church and who are we as Providence Church. And so two weeks ago, we talked about our vision, uh, that we want to see Omaha look more like heaven, that we want to see more people worshiping and more people living out what it looks like to be uh, a follower of Jesus. Then last week, we said, okay, if that's our vision, then our mission is that we want to make and send disciples from Omaha to the ends of the earth, That, that we believe the way that we get there is by making and sending disciples. 
Now for the next four weeks, what we're going to do uh, is we're going to talk through our four core values. So I know that over these weeks, it may get a little confusing. I know that it's like, okay, we got visions and missions and values and we got all this stuff, but that's why we're taking a summer on it. So if you feel like I'm a little confused, you got four more weeks, so we're going to hone this in. But um, if you think about it, I want you guys to think about it kind of this way. Jared mentioned this a little bit last week, but... Our, our vision for Providence Church, this phrase, in Omaha as it is in heaven, imagine that as kind of our, our destination. That's the goal. That's where we are trying to go. Our ultimate goal is that we would see Omaha look like heaven. Now, if the vision is the destination, the mission is really the road that you're on that's going to take you there. So we have a unique calling and a road that we believe will actually get us there. So the way to make Omaha look more like heaven, the way to look, make other cities around the globe look like heaven is by making and sending disciples. So that's the road that we're taking to get there. Then our values is kind of like the vehicle that we're in that's taking us there, right? The, core, the four core values are kind of the, it's the driving force of our church. It's what we do to make and send disciples to make Omaha look more like heaven. And so these four core values, they are, they're non-negotiables. It's the things that like, this is what we do. It's what we believe. It's who we are. This is the vehicle that we're in to accomplish the mission that God has given us. And my hope is that by the end of this summer, each and every one of us in this room, that we would kind of adopt these four things. That if somebody asked you, man, what, what drives you? that you would just rattle off these four things, that this is what, what's driving me. This is the values of my life. And so the four core values that we have here at Providence are this. Gospel, worship, community, and mission. Gospel, worship, community, and mission. And so for the next four weeks, we're simply going to look at and try to define what do these words mean and, and why are they values? What does it look like for us to actually hold these things as values? Now, uh, uh, one more thing that we do to try and help this just click in our brains is there's a, there's a directional arrow attached to each of these. Okay, so, so let me just run through them quick. The, the gospel is the down arrow. When we say down or the down arrow, what we mean is the gospel, that that's what God has come down to do for us. It's God acting towards us. The up arrow is worship. It is our response back to God. When God, uh, when we receive the gospel, the only right response is to truly worship him. The in arrow is the, the community, the, the aspect of, of who we are and what we do as a church, this, this community that we live in. And the out arrow is our mission. It's driving us out to actually impact the city and the people around us. So we have the down, up, in and out. Again, we'll go through this all the next four weeks. So uh, that's just kind of where we're going, just to give you guys a heads up. This morning, we're going to be talking about the gospel. So let me actually pray really quick for our time, and then we'll get into 1 Corinthians 15. Father, God, we thank you that, um, that we can start a church by talking about what you have done for us. That the, the whole message of Christianity isn't about, okay, here's what we have to do to please God, but we get to just start and revel in the fact that you have come down to us. So this morning, would you help us see that as beautiful? Uh, would you help uh, clear any misconceptions in our minds? Would your spirit work so intentionally in each and every one of us? 
God, would you give us all uh, sharp minds and soft hearts as we approach your word, that that would shape us and that we wouldn't look to shape it. God, we need you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, look in 1 Corinthians 15 as we get started. I want to just read the first uh, three verses to start. So read with me, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So, to start, Paul, the author of 1 Corinthians, uh, is writing to this church in Corinth, okay? So the Apostle Paul, who's writing this book, he actually planted this church in Corinth. So in Acts 18, we get to see kind of the story. And what happens is that Paul goes into the city of Corinth, and he begins preaching the gospel to the Jewish people. Then he turns and he goes and he preaches the gospel to the Gentile people, or just means that the non-Jewish people, okay? So he's preaching the gospel to everybody, and it says, many become saved, and he says it here too. He says, you received this gospel. That, that means that they actually believed it. They received this. And what happens is that this church gets planted. So Paul plants the church. After a while, he travels and he writes this letter of 1 Corinthians back to this church that he planted. And for most of the book, we see these kind of moral and ethical issues that Paul's addressing. But now we get towards the end and Paul says, okay, I want to remind you guys of something. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel that I preached to you. Remember the gospel that you received. Remember the gospel in which you stand. Remember the gospel that is saving you even today. And he says it like this in verse 3. He says, I delivered the gospel as of first importance. So what Paul's saying in this little intro to this thought in chapter 15 is, look, This gospel which I preached, which you got saved in, which you're being saved in, which you're standing in, that gospel message is of first importance. It is the most important thing. Now, many of us, I'm sure, have lived long enough, you've experienced enough life to where you know that oftentimes the first thing is oftentimes the most important thing, right? Like to get the first thing right oftentimes means what follows actually either goes well, or if you get the first thing wrong, doesn't go well, right? So let me give you two quick examples of this. Uh, The first one, just because this happened to me earlier this week, which is embarrassing, but have you guys ever tried to button up your shirt, and you get that first button wrong, like you get it off a little bit, and you don't know it, and so you're just like buttoning all the way up, and then you get to the last one, and it's all like janky, and it's like showing things, and it's just off. Have you guys ever done this? That happened to me a couple days ago, but But if you get the first one wrong, there's no possible way to make the shirt look good. Like, you're just done. You look like a fool. It's ridiculous. you got to undo everything, right? Or maybe a better example. Uh, If you guys are, if you know much about buildings, right, maybe you've heard the example that if you're building a structure or a house, what's the most important piece? The cornerstone, right? It's the first piece that you put in place. Now, if that's true and right and stable, you got a great chance that the rest of the structure is going to be good. If that first piece is off, if that cornerstone is no good, your structure is in complete jeopardy. Because the first thing is oftentimes the most important thing. And what Paul's saying here is, look, the gospel 
is of first importance. If you get this right, everything else will flow well out of it. And if you miss this, everything else is in jeopardy. And so what I want to do this morning, as we look through 1 Corinthians 15, is I want to simply look at two questions. If the gospel is of first importance, then I want to look at two things that Paul talks about. And the first question is, what is the gospel? Right? If it's this important, we better all be on the same page and know what the gospel is. And then, why is the gospel our first value? Okay, I want to just get practical. Why for us as a church is that our first value? So those are my two points this morning. So first, let's address the question, what is the gospel? So look with me in verses 3 through 5. Or 3 and 4. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, so what we see in just those couple verses is maybe the most condensed version of the gospel, really in all of Scripture. And it's why when you have the topic of the gospel, you go to this chapter. I mean, it's just, he clearly says, look, the gospel is of first importance, and here's what it is. That Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. So what we see is that the gospel is primarily about death and resurrection. That's what the gospel is really about. If you were to boil, I mean, there's a thousand facets of the gospel and different implications of the gospel, but if you boil it down, you get it down to its core, what Paul would say is that the gospel is about death and resurrection. We see that primarily in Christ's death and resurrection. But we're going to go on to see if you place your faith in Christ, the gospel really is about your death and resurrection. And then in Revelation, we find really this whole world is facing death, and in the gospel, one day we'll face resurrection. That there's a new heavens and a new earth. That what the gospel does is it, it addresses death and it brings resurrection. But let me explain this a little bit further. So if we go back to uh, the, the original language, the language of Greek that this was written in, the word for gospel is euangelion. Okay? It's the Greek word, and it literally means good news. So every time you hear gospel, it literally means good news. Now for any news to be good, it has to address kind of a dark space, right? For news to be good news, it has to invade kind of a bad space. So imagine... Um, like when a, a war is over. Think about in the olden times too. Like when the world wars were over and you had the newsboys out on the street and they're shouting, hey, good news, good news, the war is over. Now why is that good news? Because the war was such bad news, right? In the midst of darkness and in bad news came good news. Or imagine if you uh, have been sick for a while. Maybe you've had cancer for a while and you, you get the call from the doctor and they say, hey, good news, it's in remission, Good news, you're free, you're, you're no longer sick, you're now healthy. That news is specifically good news because it's addressed bad news. For news to be good, it has to invade some sort of bad space. So for us to be a, a gospel people, a gospel-centered people, we need to know the good news, but we also need to first recognize the bad news. We need to see the state of ourselves and our fallen world. You see, throughout the scriptures, it teaches that, 
that God in his infinite glory and beauty created all things. And that as he created all things, he created all things good. It says he created and it was good. He created and it was good. That all things were in submission to him and flourishing because of him. And then he specifically created us, human beings. And he created humans differently. We weren't just another piece of creation. We were actually in his image. We were created to rule and reign with him. Think about this. Humans were created with joy, with royalty, with authority, with, with this perfection. All things were right with God. And then we see sin enter the world. And from Adam and Eve until us today, all of us have chosen sin rather than God. We've desired our name, our fame, our comfort rather than submitting to God. And it is because of sin that the whole world is broken. We talked about this weeks ago that Romans 8 says that the whole world is subject to futility because of man's sin. It's why we feel shame and guilt. It's why all of us stand condemned against a holy God. And the consequence of sin is a hurting and broken world. And the punishment of our sin individually is an eternity separated from God in hell. Now, friends, that's bad news. I mean, this is bad news. And all of us recognize this. Maybe to different extents. You know, some of you, maybe you recognize this deeply. You see brokenness. Maybe where you work or where you live, you just get a glimpse of just the brokenness of this world. Or maybe you just see in yourself, you just see your, your wicked, sinful heart that you desire other things more than God. Maybe others of you, you don't see it as, as clearly. You don't see it in the world. You don't see it in yourself as much. But all of us admit that this, the world is broken and that we're not perfect. And those two things alone are very, very bad news. And so the great question then, the great question of mankind is that if God created us to be with him, live in ultimate joy and satisfaction in him, yet we have fallen because of sin, the question then is, will God intervene? If God created us and we rebelled from him, does God actually care enough to engage in that brokenness? As we sit here, condemned in front of God, hurting around in this world, will God actually intervene? Will he do anything about the bad news? I wonder how often you feel that. If any of you have ever asked maybe some of those questions. Maybe even this morning you're asking Man, could God actually forgive me? Would God actually forgive me? With what I've done or with what's been done to me, could God actually still take me back? Is God apathetic and distant or does he actually care? The great question in the midst of dark brokenness is will the God of the universe actually intervene? There's a a story uh, in a real story. It's an infamous uh, murder trial that happened in 1964 in Kew Gardens, which is a, a neighborhood in New York. And, and there was a, a night that there was this lady, her name was Kitty Genovese. And Kitty was coming back to her apartment in Kew Gardens, the neighborhood, late one night. And she got there and she was walking to her apartment building. And so imagine New York City, dark, 3 a.m., apartment buildings everywhere. And she's walking to her building. Now as she's walking to her building, she actually gets attacked by a, a man in New York City. Now the reason that this specific trial was infamous 
is not even because of the brutality of the attack. You see, this, this man attacked her and stabbed her, and as she's screaming, apartment lights start flickering on. People are hearing this, that something's going on down there, and people actually begin to look out their windows. There was an article done by the New York Times a couple weeks later that said 37 witnesses saw what was happening as he attacked this 28-year-old woman. Yet even though 37 witnesses peered down on this suffering gal, no one did anything. No one intervened. No one called the police. No one came down to help. The man eventually killed this lady while upwards of 37 people peered down upon it and did nothing. And doesn't a story like that, I mean, it just kind of like, it just gives you a pit in your stomach. Not only because of the brutality of the attack, but the fact that there was people that peered down, had the ability to help, and yet did Nothing. Whether it was fear or apathy or indifference, they looked down on suffering and did nothing. And I wonder if any of us have ever had that question towards God. Have you ever felt like you were suffering, like you were hurting, like times were dark, and you wonder if God's peering down, will he actually help? Or will he be like the people in this story and just say, sorry, you know, you screwed up, that's on you, this isn't my problem, whether it's fear or indifference or apathy, God just says, I'm not getting involved. Have you ever wondered that? The question is, will God do something in the midst of our bad news? Well, let me read to you again what Paul says in this passage. He says, the gospel, the good news, is that even in the midst of that bad news, look at verse 3, he says, Christ died for our sins. You see, in the midst of the bad news, Jesus Christ actually came and died for our sins. So let me read to you from Romans 5. Paul says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... While you were still helpless and hopeless, while you were still condemned before God, Christ died for us. You see, the good news of the gospel is that this man, Jesus Christ, actually came to earth. That this was God in the flesh. That he didn't stay up in the sky, but he actually came down to us. That in the midst of hopelessness and brokenness, he actually Intervened. You can read Isaiah chapter 53. It's this beautiful passage that's pointing forward towards Jesus. And it says, look, there's going to come a day when a righteous person will die for all the unrighteous. There's going to be a day when, when the pure one will actually be slain. When the only one who was perfect will actually suffer. And in that, the people of God will come home. It's this beautiful picture that God actually does come down, that he does intervene. You see, all of the scriptures point to the fact that sin brings death, but God did not stand idly by. God did not peer down and say, hey, here's a couple pieces of advice if you want to climb back up to me. Here's a couple things to do. No, no, no. The gospel actually says he came down for us. He did what we couldn't do. So hear me on this. No one in this room is a Christian 
because you figured out the way to work your way to God. No one. That's not how it works. The way isn't climbing up the mountain. The way is that Jesus came down to us. The only way that anyone's a Christian in this room is because we have said, look, I got no other hope. I got no other chance to stand before God except that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose again to defeat sin and death. This is the gospel message. This is what we see in this text and throughout all of scripture. That this is about the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place. And look, if you've placed your faith in him, Galatians 2.20 says, when you say, that is, that is it, that is my hope, all of my faith is in Christ, it says that you've actually now died with him and you have been raised to new life. Spiritually, you now have life in him and one day you will live with him forevermore. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Now, this might be slightly obvious with that being said, but I do want to address the second question, which is then why is this our first value? Okay, Why do we say the number one value we have here at Providence Church is the gospel? So read with me. I'm going to skip down a little bit and read uh, starting in verse, verse 12 to verse 19. And Paul is going to, his train of thought begins to switch and he's going to tell us why this death and resurrection is so key to us. So look with me, verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's some bad news, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, here's more bad news, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ, more bad news, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what's going on in the church of Corinth is that some people, you know, believe this idea that Jesus died for their sins, but they don't really believe in any sort of resurrection. They like the gospel aspect of Jesus on the cross, and that's nice, but, but the whole resurrection thing is, is too uh, foreign to them. But what Paul's saying is he's saying, look, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ, your death and resurrection, and the death and resurrection of all things. That the gospel is about resurrection. That with no resurrection, you have no gospel. And with no gospel, you have no Christianity. It's that simple for Paul. He says, look, if Jesus died for our sins, but he didn't raise from the dead, then he didn't really conquer anything, did he? I mean, he's still dead. Death, we have no victory over death because Jesus is still buried. And if we can have our sins forgiven, but we can't actually conquer death, then we still really haven't been that victorious. So for Paul, the resurrection is the key part of the gospel. And he's going to say that the gospel changes everything. I mean, look with me again. Look through some of these verses. Um, In verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
He says, we've misrepresented God. We're believing a lie. Verse 17, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. The bad news is still upon you. And then he concludes in 19 to say, look, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are the most to be pitied. So here's my summary of Paul's little section here. He's saying, look, if the resurrection isn't real, this gospel message is not good news. You are still in your sins. You still face death. And you still face a punishment before a holy God. And maybe the worst news of all, we serve a God or we have a God who doesn't even care enough to help. That's what he's saying. Look, if this isn't real, this is bad news. But thankfully, he continues. Look at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. In Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look, Paul's saying the resurrection is real. And I do want to say just a quick caveat Uh, For us, if you've ever thought, man, this resurrection thing, I don't know. I don't know if Christ is really raised from the dead. This seems a little bit crazy. I do want to say, look, the resurrection is an astounding miracle of God. Like, there's just no other thing. Like, it is an absolute miracle of God that Jesus would literally die in three days, raise again from the dead. But I do think Paul in this passage gives us just a quick argument. He just kind of throws it in there that we have to say, look, this is real. Um, think, about, think about a court case. Okay, if you're, if you're in a court case, what you really want to prove your point is eyewitnesses, right? If you've got visual, if you've got eyewitnesses that say, look, I saw this happen. Like if you get one eyewitness in a court case, it's not airtight, but you're, you're building your case. That's a good start. If you get two or three people that walk into court and say, look, this is exactly what happened. They share the same story. They saw it. I mean, in most courts, that's a pretty tough case to beat. But Paul here in verses 5 and 6, look with me. He says, look, Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the 12. So he's saying, look, we got 12 guys here that they saw this. Like, they, they can actually share with you what they saw. And it also might be noteworthy that each of these men, who many people said they just made up a lie, like, they just, this was false, they devised this themselves, They all were killed for this story, and none of them recanted. Like, all these men were killed because of this, and all of them went to their death saying, Jesus rose from the dead. But Paul doesn't stop there. He actually goes on in verse 6 to say, and then he appeared to more than 500 people. So now Paul's saying, look, it's not even just the 12 of his followers. 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead. And he said, look, most of them are still alive. So what Paul's saying is here, he's like dragging these people into court one after the other with the same exact story. Yeah, I saw Jesus. I know he was dead, but I saw him weeks later and he was alive. And Paul just throws this in, but it's a pretty tough case when you got 500 people saying, look, I saw him. Like I, I witnessed, I saw Jesus. And Paul is saying, this is true. Now, Paul believes that this resurrection... This true story of Jesus dying and raising again is the gospel message and that it should change everything. So let me kind of finish um, 
let me, let me throw, let me finish with this illustration, and then we'll just look at how this actually applies to us. But there is a, there's kind of a, an evangelistic tool maybe, or a philosophy idea called Pascal's Wager. I don't know if many of you have heard it, but there's a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. And he came up with this argument for Christianity that uh, a lot of you maybe have heard, but the argument basically goes like this. He says, look, if you're going to kind of hedge your bets, if you're going to bet on whether or not God is real, his argument is that, look, if you say, okay, I don't know if God's real, but I'm going to bet that he is, and I'm going to live that way. Well, he would say, look, if he's real, great. You get to spend eternity with him in heaven. If he's not real, you get buried, you lived a good life, and it's over. Like, it's not that big a deal. However, he says, if you choose to live like God is not real, and he turns out to be real, then you face an eternity in hell. So, I mean, it's kind of like, it's just logic, right? Now, I've actually, I've, I've said that before. I've used that in college, like, as an evangelistic thing. Just like, I mean, if you're smart, it's, you better hedge your bets. Like, it's, and it sounds pretty good. I mean, it does. And maybe some of you have said that before, and it sounds right. Logically, that does actually make sense. But here's my rub against that. You see, for, for those who are Christians, if we live like the gospel is real, and it isn't, Pascal says, oh, well. It's just, it's, it's fine. It's not that big a deal. You die, you lived a good life, you tried to love people, you're fine. However, I don't think that would be Paul's answer from this text. You see, if you were to ask Paul, hey Paul, if you die and it turns out God isn't real, are you okay with how you spent your life? I would bet everything that Paul, with a resounding yell, would say no. I mean, you see Paul's life, like... He wasted it. He suffered for nothing. He, he was almost killed multiple times for nothing. He eventually did get killed for nothing. He had, no, uh, he had no direction in his life that wasn't him just trying to follow the call of God. If this isn't real, Paul's a fool. Like, just honestly, like that, that doesn't make sense. And he goes in verse 19 to say, look, if this isn't real, of all people in the world, we are most to be pitied. Now, why should we be pitied? Because I think Paul believes that the gospel should have so radically changed everything about you that if this isn't real, you wasted your life. That it's not just a logic, well, I'll live the same way and just tack on God. I think Paul would say, no, no, no. This should change everything. This story of Jesus coming to die for your sins, to do what you couldn't do, and that he victoriously raised from the dead and rules and reigns as our king today that that should change everything about us. And so I want you to think, would people actually say that if they looked at your life and you die and it turns out this whole gospel thing isn't real, would they say, man, I pity that person. They gave it all for this thing and they came up short. Or would they maybe say, well, they, you know, they still lived a good life. They were nice to people, they had plenty of money, they had all the things they wanted, they lived the American dream, so who cares? I think for, for Paul and what we see in scripture is that this gospel should so change you that Omaha should look in on us and say, man, if this isn't real, these people are fools. They are living so radically for Jesus that they are pitied. I think the gospel changes everything. I think it changes how we interact with people. You know, our common, our heart wants 
to interact with people that can offer something, right? I mean, it's hard to love and to be with and to serve people that really offer you nothing. But the gospel says, because that's what Jesus did for you, that we actually spend time intentionally with the poor and the marginalized. The gospel changes how we spend our time. We don't just spend time in the way that makes us comfortable or profits us, but we spend time actually advancing the mission of God and helping others see this glorious truth of the gospel. The gospel changes how we view and use money. We don't hoard it and try to make sure we have enough and that we're secure and that we're comfortable and that we have a good life. But we say, man, if this is real, this money is for the advancement of the kingdom, that I want more people around the globe to get to know Jesus and I will do whatever it takes with my money, time, talent to make sure that people actually know Jesus. You see, this should affect every area of life. How we parent, how we treat our spouse, how we live in singleness, how we spend our evenings, how we hang out, what we talk about, what we think about. The gospel changes everything. So this is why it's our first value. That we talk about being a gospel-centered church because we believe that that alone, that's, you know, if we talk about the values being the car, the gospel's the engine. Like you can have great community, you can, you know, try to be, do good things for the city, You can try to work your way to God with good deeds, but look, if you miss the gospel, your car ain't going anywhere. There's no disciples being made. There's no mission being achieved because the gospel is the core element. So Providence, our hope is that we would be a gospel-centered church, that everything would run out of that truth, that we would see that, this message that Jesus did for us that we could never do, that we have a life eternal with him, and that changes how we live today.